Hello there and welcome to this latest edition of the Globe podcast. Tonight I'm joined by Richard Wyatt. Richard Wyatt is a PhD student and assistant professor at the University of Central Lancashire, also known as UCLan. How are you tonight, Richard? I'm rather good, Ellis. How are you? I'm very, very good. Tell us a little bit about your research interests. Yeah, so basically I'm a cultural historian. I'm looking at um, basically football fandom in East Lancashire, um, uh, where I live. So basically that's all about making of, of the, the culture itself, but also how the culture interacts with race, gender, class, and all the things that we, you talked about in your, in, your, in, in your introduction. So it's basically using football to basically look at wider society in, in, in East Lancashire, basically. Because football just feeds into everything, so it's a really great tool to use to help understand culture. Very, very good. Sounds fascinating. So you're a Blackburn fan, and you're also a Rayo Vallecano fan. More on that later. But tell me a little bit about the football culture in East Lancashire. Okay, yeah, we'll we'll, we'll start um, from the very beginning because it's because it, it's in particularly important in setting the the wide the trend for the wider football culture which still still exists today. So we have to take ourselves back to the late 1800s, 1880s. Um, football before this period was basically the preserve of the bourgeoisie, the upper class. It was very gentleman amateur, you know, the Corinthian way of doing it. Um, it was all about morality. Being a supporter was frowned upon and it as to have no moral benefits, but if you were to be that, you would conduct yourself in, in a gentlemanly manner. Um, but the teams from East Lancashire, um, namely Blackburn Rovers and Blackburn Olympic, who no longer exist anymore, shut this, shut this up completely. Um, these were the teams were the first um, teams from working class areas to reach the FA Cup finals. Okay, and they were against playing teams such as Eton Old Boys and, and the such. So this completely changed football, both as the game, because it had working class players winning the FA Cup for the first time in um, 1883. So you've got the Olympic won it. But also you've got the first time working class fans have gone down to London to support their team. So, and these teams were the first mass following of, of supporters. And these working class norms, which were displayed by these supporters, um, has helped shape the the, the, the the wider culture. So you've got that from before, the middle class basically was all about gentlemanly behaviour, but the working class fans was all about the competitive regional identity, uh, the passion of willing your, your, your team to win, their partisanship, the consumption of alcohol, um, basically creating their carnival atmosphere, which we associate with football today was all started and was predominantly coming out of the working class in, in, in Lancashire, who were the first mass fans to present this, this culture. It wasn't received very well by the, the Southern gentlemen. The Black and Rose fans were described as, at the time as a northern horde of uncouth garb and strange oaths, like a tribe of Sudanese Arabs let loose. So that's an example of, from the newspaper at the time, the Palmal Gazette, criticising Blackburn fans for their their partisanship and ungentlemanly behaviour, but that shows the classism um, which is on 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 show there. But the Blackburn fans 
and East Lancashire was really important in setting the trend of the culture which we which we have today, um, and that working the working class norms. Um, even though the fans are, is it universally working class anymore? I mean, it's arguably debatable if it was then, but certainly the norms and conduct and behaviour and atmosphere is certainly of the working class culture, even if it's not always all working class people creating that culture, it's still very much part of it. And Blackburn, Burnley, Darwin was at the forefront of creating that. And certainly in the national eye anyway, with the media coverage. Clitheroe, Bolton, Pendle, all those sort of towns and everything. But tell me, when you came to support club in East Lancashire, traditionally, historically, was that based around class, religion, or was it based just merely around where you were born or where you were from? In Blackburn, going way back, Blackburn Olympic were founded by working class. Working class. Well, Blackburn Rose were actually set up by um, the mill, sons of mill owners, so the bourgeois. They got the players and the fans were still still came from the working class. So there wasn't really that much of a distinction there. And people would kind of support both. But the difference between Blackburn, Burnley, Darwin would be where you're from. I mean, back in the day, many people would, would actually watch both clubs. It's only actually, even though actually Blackburn and Darwin had a very competitive um, rivalry, even back in the, one of the first rivalries recorded, you know, in the 19th century. But fan, the, the partisanship of, of fan culture as in the 60s onwards, when away travel was allowed so people could go in the motorways and, and see, see your team away en masse that every week, every week when um, East Lancashire started separating off and people would come in particularly more, would, would be more tribal. There was obviously some examples of, of local incidents, but um, it is on, basically on, on, on geography, where who you support. There isn't really, everyone is, majority of people are working class in East Lancashire. Obviously, the class composition of fans have, has got more than middle class as time gone by, but people are basically the same. It's just the geography which which splits you in this area, really. No religious or class differences, really. Overwhelmingly working class, all, all, all the teams, really. So, I mean, let's widen this out to sort of wider northern England. Certainly, one of the trends I've noticed, my dad's from Holt, rather than being defined in this football team, it's a city that's defined in its rugby. If you're from West Hull, you support Hull FC. If you're from East Hull, you support Hull KR. And there's all sorts of Northern England, there's all sorts of splits like that, isn't there? Because obviously, clubs existed alongside rugby league clubs and cricket clubs, etc. Yeah, so it's, you're right. Geography is the defining is the defining issue between which club you would support. Even though they're all in the same local area, it would be just basically on, on your region. Um, they're very much similar mill towns, so people would have the same type of jobs. So the, the fans were able to exist with all the clubs in, in my area. Basically, when the half day on Saturday was introduced, that people would be able to go and, and visit their the local gate, their local the local teams. So that's why East Lancashire, in particular, because the uh, the cotton industry was one of the first industries to introduce the half day. So you know, clubs were able to start, fans went to watch them, so they generated money, were able to get the best team, etc. And then the fans culture was able to grow out of that. So it's very much a similar experience, but just based on, on geography rather than any other other reason. Aha. That's very interesting. Let's talk about the broader cleavages that exist 
in English football. So oftentimes in cities like Liverpool and Everton, you've got clubs that are Liverpool, Liverpool, Everton, or you know the Manchester clubs, City United, or North London, or whatever. The split is primarily geographic. It's primarily where you're from, although in certain cases class does come into it. But in particular in Scotland, in particular, religion plays a, a key factor. So tell us a little bit about, about the other distinguishing cleavages that exist in English football. To be honest, English football, porters are quite... They, they, a lot of them have come through a similar... Because basically all the clubs have basically have a, basically a working-class found, foundation. I can only think of Chelsea, of a club who was um, founded not with a tradi- in the traditional working class sense. It, obviously, in places like Spain, you, you know, Betis and Sevilla, there is a you know class distinction. But in in, in England, um, it's very much class is a unified unified issue. Religion, um, obviously, in Scotland, the, the religious um, sectarianism between Celtic and Rangers is the big cle- the big the big cleavage there. But it's not a a massive difference in England. For example, Manchester City and Manchester United, just, they are simply just the same, and it's basically family tradition would 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 choose on who you support. In London, you do have some interesting reasons why people pick different different clubs. For example, um, I believe Arsenal have um, obviously London being a, um, a very diverse, ethnically more diverse place than several of my experience in in in, in Lancashire. Arsenal, they have a tradition of even when their their hooligan culture in the in the sixties, they were seventies, um, eighties, specifically anti-racist um, hooligans. You know that sounds strange. So a lot of people who were of ethnic minorities were, were drawn to Arsenal um, teams such as Chelsea, um, Millwall. I don't want to be slandering these teams unfairly, but they did have a reputation of like far right activity. So if you were in those areas of London. If you're in that way inclined in the southeast London, you 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 could pick Millwall over Charlton or Palace, and the same with Chelsea in 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 West London. Yeah, and again, but London mainly divides on on region. You know, east. If you're in the east, you're West Ham, North, Spurs, or Arsenal. But as I said, Arsenal does have a ethnic minority. Tottenham, I believe, has the the Jewish link. So a lot of Jewish supporters will will support um, Tottenham. That's kind of grown over, over time and they kind of they use the Jewish identity in a controversial way in some of the songs but we can maybe go into that later uh, so London's probably the, the most interesting place on, on differences how people there's so much choice but in general in England it is overwhelmingly people are kind of it's obviously become more middle class now but traditionally from the same class just it's just on it's just on, the geography is, is the biggest split there so nationally Oftentimes, clubs emerged as church teams or village teams and then became town teams and city teams. Tell us a little bit about the evolution of football clubs. As you said, differences in clubs of how, how they've developed. So you've got, you've got a situation where most, most clubs, the so Blackburn is an example of this, where you've got owners of the local bourgeoisie have, um, gone off to be privately educated in their schools they've come back and then they've set up a, a club in their in their local area and then the local working class have come to play for the team and then um, the support, local working class people have come to then 
come to to watch the watch the team. So that's interesting when people talk about the people's game. It's often most clubs were founded actually by the bourgeoisie. The working class fans often could obviously could influence the owners because they were reliant on them for income a lot more than they can today. But there is a myth that football was actually ever owned by the working class. Majority were made by in that situation. Then you've got the situation where people commercially, so correct me if I'm wrong, Liverpool was brewers, so it's a chance to make money from brewery, so they support the clubs in order order to generate to generate financial rewards. You've got some like Aston Villa, Man City, was set up by local churches to help young people get off, um, you know, you know, you know, just like modern day, you'd set up like clubs for young people to get involved. Churches would set up sports clubs for for young people to to get involved in that like that. And then again, they would gradually become more more popular and take off. Arsenal, however, are interesting because they were and Manchester United, I think. Arsenal definitely were set up by their actually a people's club. They were actually owned set up by working class. They had a working class committee. Who, who ran it and who initially was um, a working class outfit, Arsenal, but obviously eventually was taken over. I think Scotland had a more of a tradition of working class clubs being set up, but in tradi- traditionally, the, the people's game, working class have never really had control of the game. They've set the culture, they've set the tone, they've set the spirit, but they've never owned the game. One of the Interesting things when you read Jonathan Milton's uh, book Inverting the Pyramid is how he highlights the subtle differences between the foundations of football in in Scotland and the foundations of football south of the border. And, you know, in the UK, in um, England in particular, or what could be the rest of the, the UK in a couple of years if Scotland gets its independence, was essentially... In the, south, in the south of the UK, in England, it was essentially founded by the local bourgeoisie, the local middle classes. And, you know, the working classes, almost, to be fair, came late to the sport because of the, the conditions that a lot of these people lived in in the late 19th century, early 20th century. But then you've got this greater focus, haven't you, on working class regulation, factory teams, etc. And that's how the class consciousness emerges in the UK in uh, England, whereas in Scotland, north of the border, the clubs were primarily founded by, you know, working class, working class men. One of the big differences in that is in England particularly, um, particularly in the south of England, football games were traditionally played actually on cricket grounds. I'm reading here that Blackburn's first ground was actually on a field that a farmer used to graze cows. And then they eventually went to cricket grounds. So one of the things you've got is clubs using cricket grounds, which is really quite interesting because it shows the alliance between the bourgeoisie and the game of football in, it, in its emergence. Yeah, yeah. We didn't actually move to um, Ewood Park till 1890, so we'd already won the FA Cup three times before we eventually got to our own ground. And when we did move there, it was a multi-sports stadium. But yes, you're completely right. Blackburn is always been history. It's owned by the bourgeoisie, but they're supported by by the by working by the working class. My argument is that even though the bourgeoisie are owning the ground in financial terms, the things that the the, the, the working class who attend the games they're not just consumers; they're actually they're creating they they're 
they make it what it is. Okay, like you go to a game, the atmosphere and all those traditions around the game is what has been that wasn't created by the bourgeoisie, like saying, "Oh, you will chant and you will do this." This is what they created organically, and and they created, unfortunately, as in everything, the social production of uh, the working class. It's a bit like folk songs, I suppose socially made by the working class but the middle class financially benefited from it when they commercialised football and were able to sell it back to us um, and they continue to still do that to this day but it's very much collective social products which is what I, I research into that that area so yeah yeah I was going to say there's that quote isn't there football is a gentleman's game by rough a gentleman's game played by ruffians and rugby is a ruffian's game played by gentlemen discuss <laughs> oh, I really do. I, I I find that it's quite a classist, classist comment discussion. I think footballers are often and still are today. I think that's an example relevant today of how they are, how they're derided. Because even though a lot of them uh, they're not members of the working class financially, they culturally come from that, and it's an easy way to um, to criticise their behaviour whilst. Rugby players are always seen as, as gentlemanly, but to be honest, I always, I often see their behaviour as quite unseemly. Like, uh, certainly when I was a student, you know, the rugby team was always, you know, vile behaviour. So I think just the working class are unfairly unpillaged, while the rugby players are seen as these gentlemen just because they've got a posh accent, but actually their behaviour is, is a lot worse, in my opinion. Let's kick forward the time machine a couple of decades now. We talked about the emergence of football, but now, tick, 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 tick. Let's talk about the legacy of hooliganism in the 70s and 80s in the English game. So how did sort of hooliganism emerge to sort of organise fan groups in the English game? Okay, so that's a, it's a tough question to go off, wing off the top of my head. But basically, there was some examples of pre-60s of... Um, some violence, but it's no, nowhere near on the levels as it was in, in the 60s. You've got a situation here. There's lots of different theories about it. One popular theory was football was starting to become commercialised and society was becoming more commercialised. Um, so a way of recreate and working class culture was in decline. So a way of recreating um, traditional working class identity of strength Led to what was known as like the skinhead and the and the and the football violence as a way of kind of recreating recreating a culture which no longer exists. It's resist like kind of using resistance to the society through a ritual of recreating a society which which no longer exists. So working class people would try to recreate a culture what no of masculinity through through their football, which led to to violence. But obviously there were some middle class people who were also um, involved in, in 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 that. So that's one theory. We've got other theories by um, Dunning, Professor Dunning, um, saying it's because the rough basically said, uh, I don't agree with this, but basically the working class were exposed to rough lifestyles, so they brought that to the football terraces. But as I said, that doesn't explain why middle class people were, were also involved in it. So basically, it certainly was a way of subgroup the casual culture was a way of creating an identity around around the club and basically of showing uh, of showing um, masculinity. But obviously, it was I'm coming from the school that it was there was a media kind of obsession with it, which kind of overblow what the situation. Obviously, there was violence, but sometimes it was just general rowdy behaviour, like the carnival esque of a football match. All of a sudden, that's 
loutish behaviour. Well, actually, it's just just how these people at a game, you know, cheering, having a drink. Um, and sometimes it was, you know, folk devils of blowing. It was kind of about the enemy within in, in the 60s. So it was basically in the 70s, 80s, you know, it was a, a folk devil, which it, it was handy for the government to, a bit like uh, football fans were a bit like them. It's a bit extreme, you know, almost like them. I don't, I don't like to say it, but you know how Muslims are demonising the press today, almost like they're the enemy within, you know, easy for tabloids like the sun to attack to to so the government could put authoritarian policies in. So it was convenient for them as well. And obviously you've got the ideological elements as well of the Thatcher government that wanted to um that wanted to sort of use football violence to sort of further its ideological aims, would you say, particularly some of the policing methods that the Thatcher government authorised. Oh yeah, com- oh, oh, oh absolutely completely. Um basically I think Football fans was, was, they wanted to defeat football, football fandom was like a bastion, of, and it still is, I think, one of the remaining kind of like social democratic poles in society, you know, that she, it's like the miners, like, I think it was some things that she wanted to, she wanted to, to defeat, um, so it was basically, basically blowing up the situation so she could basically cut down on it. Football, it's weird that like, you look at it now, it's, football's like everywhere, but in the 80s, you know, the Times, I mean, a lead comment was a slum game watched by slum people in slum stadiums, absolutely pillared as being the lowest of, uh, lowest of the low. So they, um, so yeah, so they could use ID cards, they could heavy police. And that's, that tactic you see what happened in, what happened in Hillsborough is just one is, you know, that kind of treatment of depersonalization of people led to the, the Hillsborough disaster. How did the hooligan elements of the football game sort of vanish out of the football game. Obviously, we'll talk about the Taylor Report in a bit, but specifically on hooliganism, how did the narrative sort of change? Hmm. Yes, it's a very, it's a very good question. So you've got all city stadiums, um, a lot of the changes, unfortunately, the gentrification of the game, the cost is became prohibitive because of the seating. You're able to Put people in the seats or CCTV cameras on on the on the grounds. Were able to highlight people, and um, people could be removed and 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 clamped down on it like that. So one benefit of gentrification is the reduction of of violence. Some opposed to increasing ticket prices and what's happening in football. But one thing what has come out of that is. A, a reduction in, in, in violence and making it more suitable for young people to, well, either can't afford it, but if they were to afford it, it's, it's more family friendly, I suppose. Let's talk about the elephant in the room when you're talking about how they got rid of hooganism. Obviously, the Hillsborough disaster gives me the chills just saying that, really. Just obviously, I'm from the other side of water to Liverpool, and the Hillsborough disaster is a, still a very, very prevalent issue here and it's one of the things that I think and you can agree or disagree this change the narrative in English football particularly with the Taylor report but 96 fatalities occurred and at the time a lot of the media a lot of the press a lot of the establishment sought to put the blame on the on the working class fans but actually it was an institutional well there's no two ways about it it was an institutional cover-up by the police and by by the establishment to cover particular failures of the police match commander 
uh, Superintendent David Duckingfield of South Yorkshire Police. It's a very, very emotional topic for a lot of people, for a lot of Liverpool fans, for a lot of people from a Merseyside area. But obviously Hillsborough happened, it was dreadful. But one of the things that it brought in was the Taylor Report in 1994, which advised that the FA did away with all standing stadium, well, standing in standing areas in stadiums and moved towards all seater stadiums. Tell us a little bit about how that changed the fan culture in England in particular. Oh, oh massive way. So fan culture basically was built around um, standing on terraces, especially behind behind the goals. This is the chief area where basically before a game, people because they didn't um, didn't have a reserved seat, they'd get there early. They would sing and create an atmosphere. Uh, before before a match started and throughout the games the crowd would move and generate amazing atmospheres um, dur- during the game but when that's taken away um, people then sat down obviously when you sat down it, it's not as easy to sing you can't just find your friends it, that it reduced the atmosphere and then the seats also gave an excuse to um, increase the prices so it's I don't have the figures in front of me but up to, you know, you could see a game for a few pounds and all of a sudden it's like 60 pounds to see some games. So they're being gentrified the crowd. So the more, more expensive the tickets, the more you have money you have to have. So it means mainly older people who are less likely to generate atmosphere. Um, also you get more international fans who ironically both come for the atmosphere, but also are a reason why the atmosphere <laughs> isn't as good comes because they're part of the holiday experience. So the atmosphere isn't as effective like that. You do get a group of fans who try to resist that and try to recreate the terrace atmosphere in the seating areas. Um, some clubs have more success in that than others, but especially on away days, that kind of spirit st- still remains apart from the pricing. I've watched a lot of games in Spain over the last five years or so. And in Spain, yes, they have all-seater stadiums. But they have the ultras behind the goals and the ultras are the, the working class fans, the ones who make all the noise, are passionate and sing. And, you know, the real difference for me between ultras in, sadly, a lot of the time in the English game, ultras in the English game, the passionate fans in the English game, are all too focused on being confrontational to the away side. Whereas in the Spanish game, particularly Barcelona and the Catalan game, it's about creating a collective atmosphere and there's a lot less antagonism. I guess part of that is to do with the lack of away fans at games in the Spanish game, but certainly there's a significant difference, isn't there? Yes, there, yes, there is. I mean, we don't really have the ultra culture in England. It's more of the, you know, it's not really that unified fan expression it's more spontaneous here we do have the casual culture but it is more it's not that kind of militarized uh, approach to, to to fandom yes it is very partisan but as, as you said that is i think partly because of the way the way fans are probably the loudest fans in english football when they come they kind of generate a lot of the atmosphere i think spain does lack that to an extent i think in england clubs are trying their best to kind of create areas where you can um where you can sing. For example, at Blackburn, we do have an unreserved seating area where fans can stand together and sing. So they are trying to... I mean, it's kind of a, too little too late. I mean, Manchester United has a singing section now as well so to help help generate atmosphere because they know 
they they they've kind of killed yeah, killed the atmosphere. Yeah. So the, yeah, I I don't I, I like the ultra the ultra um, fans in in Spain. I like that culture, but it's not it's not English. I, don't, I think it'd be wrong to import that onto our model because we have our own culture, which is which is different. We need to revive that rather than imposing a new one on us because that's it's not. It's not an organic culture then. It's, we've adopted it by someone else. We want to keep what we have here, which is special. It's one of those sad ironies in your life, really. But 96, mostly working class Liverpool fans, solidaristic, collectivistic, being killed in disaster going to watch a football match, sort of gave impulse to the neoliberalisation of football. Would you agree? Now, McLean talks about like a shock doctrine of very big wide-scale disasters are used for implement radical change usually neoliberal liberalizing the economy so make profit out of it and i i think that that theory could be applied to the hills of disaster and highs all that and big really shocking events is able to be used i mean it's not a conspiracy it's just taking advantage of an event to basically bring in reforms which would which changed the game forever. So basically, big disaster footballs, fans is that it's Nadia. What what can we bring in? To Theron Taylor, he was actually a, he warned against gentrifying of the game. But that aside, that was used to basically change the game forever. It is safer, definitely safer. So that is better. But yes, I think it was definitely used to crowbar, make it more palatable, more commercial, more be able to sell it to, to more wealthy families. Let's talk about sort of familiarisation, as people often say, of the game. I mean, you think about it, and I'm a Man City fan. I mean, Man City season to get older. Level 2, Colin Berry, if anybody's asking. But I go to watch the games, and I look at the prices for some of the games, you know, 30, 40 quid, 40, 40, 50, 60 quid for adults, maybe 10, 20 quid for kids. You know, a dad or mother going with two kids and then you've got to buy a programme, you've got to buy food at the stadium because for certain things you're not allowed to take into the stadiums and everything like that. And suddenly, a match day for three people to go and watch a football match, a parent and their two kids there to watch a football match, is easily above £100. And I think that expense within the game is... One of the reasons that's putting a lot of working class fans off actually going to watch matches, would you agree? Yeah, I mean, it was academic, rich, I mean, the crowd is just getting older. So there's going to be a problem where there's a ticking time bomb where I think the average Premier League season ticket is in the 40s. I mean, I don't know where the atmosphere is going to, is going to come from. There is academic literature which says that working class people basically do still go. It's the same, a lot of the same old guys who used to go in the 80s or whatever, but they they stretch their they stretch their budget, they go into debt to be able to to afford to go. But young, new waves of working class fans coming in, I just think it's awful. It's kind of like almost like social cleansing of lower income from the from these games because basically, if you're on minimum wage, as in which many 19, 20 year olds are in towns like Blackburn, there's just no way you can afford to to go. That they really need to think. Clubs need to think about the the price and strategy for the future. And I think, especially with these big TV deals, I mean, it was it Man City basically the the year it went up. Could they basically 
give away every single season ticket for free and they'd still have more money than they did the year before because of the TV deal. And when, when you're such a... I'm not saying they do that, but I'm just saying they can think about having tickets reserved for local school children, for young people. I know they do tier pricing, but it's still, still a lot of money. I think that's something what... Personally, I'd be in favour of government legislation, but I can't, the current government are, <laughs> are not going to get involved in trains, never mind football clubs. Well... No, I think I think you're right, and I think part of the problem here is since the Taylor report was instigated in 1994, there hasn't been a government that's been radical enough to sort of stand up for ordinary fans, if you know what I mean. And there hasn't really been a prime minister or a senior member of the government, save for probably Andy Burnham and Gordon Brown's government, and actually Gordon Brown himself is quite a big football fan, who's been invested enough in football and in working class culture to sort of change the game, would you say? Yes, I'd agree. I think I think the, the um, Sports Direct, which was set up by Andy Burnham, led on that. I think about setting up mutualism in football ownership. I think that was a positive in the in the noughties now. Well, obviously Brown lost in 2010, so it was 2005 to 2010. That was set up about introducing cooperatives into um, football. So teams like uh, Portsmouth, Wimbledon, SE United, have you all used this cooperative model, which is, again, a very much cooperative model is very much rooted in the working class. That's um, uh, a social product of the working class. So even though not all the people involved are working class, it's a, the social model is created by the working class. Has been it was in, implemented by the Labour government that was giving support to help fans take over clubs. But you're right on the big things, a bit like the last government, they could, the last Labour government, they were happy to do things like that. But when it came to actually regulating things, much like the banks, they're just not prepared to interfere with money making. And certainly since Labour gone and the new Tory government in, I mean, I, Theresa May even watched the football game. I'm not convinced. You know, I don't, they've just got no interest in. Any form of regulation, never mind, never mind um, um, football regulation. I think the only thing they care about is using it as a Trojan horse to get trade deals. You know, in China, you know, buy our clubs and we'll give us some bit of money. You know, yeah, sell our our cultural assets. You know, take our you know assets which we've socially built up for you know over 150 years. You take them and maybe give us a trade deal. So I'm a bit sceptical of. I hope on that. Now, it's an academic theory that's been criticised by some on the left, but David Goodhart, uh, written a book that came out in January this year, basically dividing society between people who are citizens of, between people who are somewhere and people who are anywhere, if you know what I mean. So the people who are somewhere are people who are sort of deeply rooted in the local community, deeply rooted in their community and their ethos, you know, they, they may have a religion, they may feel intensely nationalistic, you know, they may support, a, they may have a strong loyalty to a football club or a factory or strong, strong historical links to an area. And then you've got your citizens of anywhere who are sort of your, I don't want to use the phrase metropolitan elite because it's much maligned, but they are almost your metropolitan elite, your sort of, your sort of mobile globalised generation who feel as comfortable in London as in Barcelona or in Amsterdam. And I just wanted to ask if you think that that sort of issue, that sort of somewhere than anywhere in society, has had an issue on the football game. Because I certainly 
think as you go to Liverpool, there's a lot of Norwegian fans there, whereas the, the ordinary who are citizens of anywhere are wealthy and independently wealthy. But the people who are somewhere, the people who are strongly from Liverpool, are priced out of going to games. The same in Barcelona. And one of the reasons I don't go to watch matches at the Camp Nou is because the tickets are extortionately expensive. But you're talking 70, 80 quid to go and watch Barcelona play Osasuna or Granada or one of the lower down tape teams in the table. And if you want to go uh, watch them play Real Madrid or Atletico, you wouldn't get much change out of back maybe 150, 200 quid. And that's one of the problems. Your citizens of anywhere, your global fan base, your global fandom in football is oftentimes pricing your local fans out of, out of a football game. Would you agree? It's a complex question. I agree with some elements of it. So you've got a situation with a positive... I'll go back to the, the first bit about people kind of left behind. I think football does play an important role for those people. I think we've, had, we've, we've seen unions destroyed. We've seen community because of neoliberalism. People move around constantly. Um, jobs are transient. Um, so there isn't that kind of rooted working class. Well, this is the problem so- Labour Party have in the crisis of social democracy where the institutions of the working class are basically been chipped away so much they, they they just don't really exist anymore and community you know transient populations and such and but football teams are one of their only few things which are, are rooted so that still people can basically recreate that solidarity with coming together at the football match so it does play a does play a role in that with the the kind of like the football flaneurs the people who can move around i would not criticise anyone for wanting to experience another culture. I personally love experiencing football in different countries and appreciating appreciating their culture. I think, however, when we go into these things, people need to be sensitive of of that of that of that culture. I think you've got to be emotionally um, intelligent to but kind of adopt the 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 behaviours of the local fans. For example, like the Norwegian fans They've got basically just, they're very much part of Scandinavian fans, very much part of football culture in England. They are, they basically adopt uh, the norms of the British fans and the academic, pa- the academic papers say they are welcomed because they kind of adopt the norms of um, the fans. I think people do have an issue when, as you said, people come in and they kind of take selfies on their big selfie sticks and the iPads and they kind of, don't kind of culturally uh, kind of have a, they basically have a negative effect on the atmosphere. And again, they take ticket prices. They kind of just see it as a holiday and they come in, but they're not really sensitive to the, to the, to the local population. I think that is an issue. And sometimes that can, they're then going to games can drive up prices, which the local people can't afford. Uh, but I want to be careful not to be kind of xenophobic. Cause I think people should be welcome to visit football games and, go on any match they would like but I do think people need to be sensitive it's not about being xenophobic though it's about you genuinely have to be able to debate these topics without the label of oh xenophobia 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 because it is actually a theme that affects people in everyday life you know what I mean if you've got a fan who's coming in from abroad who's willing to pay 70 80 quid in a you know, Liverpool fan who's, out, who's on a zero-hours contract who struggles to make ends meet at the end of the month and have even 20, 30 quid to spend on a football ticket. It's a 
it's really difficult, isn't it? It does have an effect, yeah, and it's that, and it does affect the atmosphere. I think they do need to make it. I think there's ways around it which can accommodate both. I think it probably could be done done better because at the moment you get. I did on my masters. You basically get a lot of interviewees would say, you know, they would have like a, they're trying to get an atmosphere going, and they've just got like a family, like not sounding bad, like it's seven just seven Koreans who just don't know what's going on, like sat between them, and they're all standing up and they're just like there and then maybe they could make it more of an effort to make it more appropriate i think in barcelona they kind of have like a, the tourist section and they kind of i think they've kind of got it a bit more sorted and they kind of have that as more expensive almost um than for the local like members so maybe there is more intelligent ways of of doing it but i think it is a real issue for fans at manchester united at liverpool when i was doing interviews that was coming up regular as agreements many people were saying they like having they like that people around the world support their club. So it's not xenophobia driving that. It's more, as you said, material on the ground, mainly because these fans were going. Obviously, they're concerned about prices, but also just atmosphere as well. They were concerned about they could see it having a negative effect in the atmosphere. So that is real. Don't sound like um, a new labour labour right politician saying very real concerns. But you know, <laughs> there is there is that element. You're right. Yeah. Can't be ignored. In the defence of a lot of these clubs, though, they do have schemes for local fans or cheaper prices for kids or kids can get into cup games for free and an adult gets a, a cheaper ticket or whatever. A lot of clubs do have schemes where they then try and keep the prices low for, for loyal fans who go to the games. But then that creates an issue if you're a fan who maybe can't go to a game every you know, two weeks on a Saturday or whenever the games are being played. And, you know, you then have to buy tickets from time to time and it's it's more expensive then. But I mentioned in the introduction, have you got any observations on that, Richard? I, I think a lot of the deals, I think, I think some clubs are more committed to it than others. I think it's quite superficial at, at these bigger clubs. I think Manchester City, your club are quite good, aren't they? Um, but I most of the big clubs, they might do a League Cup game where the demand is less, a bit lower. But in general, it's, it's still set at a, a primitive, a primitive level. And it, at the bigger clubs, you have to don't you have to become a member before you can even buy a ticket. So that's like X amount of money before you even even in even into the stadium. So they're kind of um, generating money after you just like that. Uh, I mean, these super clubs. I mean, the demand is just so high. I don't know. I, I don't know what they do with that. But I think there's clubs below those super clubs where the stadiums aren't even quite full but the prices are still prohibitive you mentioned in the introduction you're a Rayo Vallecano fan as well as a Blackburn fan obviously for those who don't know Rayo Vallecano is a small club in the northern working class suburbs of Madrid that's got quite a left-wing ethos and solidarity how did you come to support Rayo? you basically summed it up there really basically as a Blackburn fan We've been through some tough times recently and I was kind of like, I wanted to just kind of like find something else to take my mind off it. And obviously you can't pick another team in England because that would be sacrilegious. So he kind of, I kind of got fond of the Spanish game. I I like Spanish football. It's very good. Um, And I was uh, drawn to Rayo through their their fan culture and I support Blackburn because it's a local thing, but I'm politically of the left and Rayo's 
working class left wing values, anti racism, very much um, um, appealed to me. Uh, so, and they were they were managed by Paco Hemeth at the time, who play very like cavalier and exciting football. They don't play, <laughs> they don't play that anymore. But they um, that uh, that uh, appealed to me. So yeah, I just thought they could be my Blackburn. You know, what go in the games, but Rio could be my TV team, and like, I, so I could I could I could follow them. So I was able to curse those as well. Have they? Since been relegated and are in a relegation battle in um, in <laughs> the second division at the moment, but I think they'll stay up. But I mean, obviously, Rayo one of the famous cases was I think the season before last or last season they famously came to the aid of an elderly woman living in the area who had been through no fault of her own, who had been uh, what's the word evicted from her house and they came to the aid and raised funds for her so she could stay in the house and that's great and that's sort of for me typified the solidistic nature of of Rio Vallecano against the sort of well obviously traditionally in Madrid you've had Atletico who were linked to the to the right wing sort of Franquista uh, movement after the civil war particularly the navy um, and all that, the more sort of working class Francoist elements. And then Real Madrid, who largely, although not exclusively, it must be said, were supported by the aristocracy. So there's sort of this oppositional nature, really, isn't there, with Rio, Rio Cano? Oh, yeah, they're, 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 they're fascin- it's a fascinating district. So basically, you've got some working class suburb, but it's also uh, when... Immigrant, different immigrants moved to that area. Firstly, Spanish immigrants, when um, because obviously there hasn't been mass immigration in Spain for many years. Uh, there, other areas of Spain, they would move to Bayacus because it was um, cheaper. But also later on, you've got um, immigrants from outside of Spain moving to that area. So that all puts it into into the mix of being oppositional. It's an area which has only ever elected parties from the left, um, which is in contrast to Madrid. Which, even though it's run by the left now, had a history of being ruled by the Partido Popular, which is the Conservative Party, links with which is descendant from Francoism, as you said. Uh, but the Veracruz is um, always uh, always kept that um, that culture. Also interesting, got to mention, they also have a, a history of English players such as Laurie Cunningham played for them back in the day, uh, Mark Draper as well. So reading their uh, biographies of Laurie Cunningham very much attracted me to them as well as a team. Very interesting. Very, very interesting. Now we're going to close off this podcast. I just wanted to ask if you've got any recommendations as to how we can make football and fan culture in particular a game for the many, not the few. I think the easiest thing we can do is say standing. I think that the clubs want it to happen. The fans want it to happen. We just need to get the law changed. So we could have areas where fans can stand and create the atmosphere, recreate that. That's something which I think practically could be easily done. Idealistically, I'd obviously like to see the cooperative movement, Sports Direct model expanded. Fans should join uh, their supporters' trusts. And they should also check out the Football Supporters Federation, the the Football Fans Union. And I think we can make small changes. And if you ever had any troubles at a game, um, being with draconian police they can help you out so i think things like that um 
would help. Um, maybe changing the government might be also advantageous for football. And obviously one of the other things I would say as well is kick it out or very, very much focus, kick it out. Originally started as an anti-racism, anti-fascism organisation. They're very, very focused on improving the diversity of football audiences and improving access to the game, which is something that's really, really positive. And hopefully some of their schemes can come to fruition as well, alongside the Football Supporters Federation and the different organisations that exist to represent fans, voices, both locally, regionally and nationally. Richard, it's been a pleasure speaking to you this evening. It's certainly been the most political, theoretical podcast I've done with WFI to date. Where can we find you on social media if we want to engage with any of the issues you brought up in this podcast? Oh, please do. Uh, the best way to contact me would be through Twitter. It's Richard N. Vanille Wyatt. That's Richard N. Wyatt. Um, I will definitely reply if you want to tweet me or follow me. Um, if you're interested in football and politics and you tweet about that, I'll probably follow you back as well if you've got a shared interest. Um, yeah, so please follow me. Cheers. Great stuff. I'm Ellis Palmer. You can find me on Twitter at EllisPalmer94. I also host WFI's EPO weekly podcast where we review the beautiful game in England. And please do check out the podcast Richard and I did in Blackburn a little bit earlier on. It should be a bit further down in your podcast feed, so be sure to check it out. It's well worth a listen on the ownership situation and the season that Blackburn have had. To check out uh, the podcasts that WFI have been doing, head to the WFI room on iTunes or check out the WFI feed on SoundCloud and be sure to subscribe to WFI's podcasts because then you can get them directly into your feed without having to download them individually. I'm Ellis Palmer. This has been a World Football Index production edited by Dave Cowan. You can get in touch with World Football Index on Facebook by tapping in World Football Index or on Twitter at World Football I. Thank you very much. Have a good week, guys. <laughs>